maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. Before we get into this week's episode, there's something I'd love you to give a try. We've just launched a new online streaming platform, Intelligence Squared Plus. It's packed with over 20 years of our debates and whether you want to tune in live and watch along and ask your questions or watch back on demand, everything is totally ad-free and there's endless hours of discussion to dive into. The usual price is £14.99 a month, but we want to give you, our podcast listeners, a special offer to give it a try. For 10 days only, we're offering a subscription for only £10 a month, and the offer ends at midnight GMT on Tuesday 20th December. Get it while you can. So if you want to join the Intelligence Squared Plus community, visit intelligencesquaredplus.com or click the link in the episode description to subscribe and use the discount code MONTH10 or ANNUAL10 to start watching today. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, President Zelensky has been the national symbol of Ukrainian resistance. Today on the podcast, we're joined by the authors of a new book profiling the leader and what they call the Zelensky Effect. When American forces suggested a potential evacuation of Vladimir Zelensky from a beleaguered Ukraine at the beginning of the invasion, he famously declared, I need ammunition, not a ride. But how did Zelensky, once an actor who played the president on television, come to be one of the most charismatic and significant wartime leaders of the 21st century? Olga Onuk and Henry Hale's new book tells that story. And here's our host for the episode, Carl Miller, research director at Demos, with more. 
I'm joined by two uh, wonderful authors and researchers. Firstly, we have Olga Onuk, a senior lecturer in politics at the University of Manchester and former fellow of the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, and Henry Hell, professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University and co-director of the program on new approaches to research and security in Eurasia. Together, they are the authors of this new book, The Zelensky Effect, which we're going to be talking about today. Olga, Henry, very, very warm welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. All right. So let's begin just with the Zelensky effect itself. So the kind of backbone argument of the book, what are you arguing that the, the effect of Zelensky is and, and, and where has it come from? So, Henry, why don't I take this one uh, to start off with? Um, well, we like to talk about the Zelensky effect as two sides of the same coin. So on the one hand, in order to even begin to understand Zelensky, the wartime president, you really need to understand the nation that he is born out of. This incredible Ukrainian contemporary political community where ordinary citizens have a very strong attachment to the state and a sense of civic identity where their belonging above everything is state centric. And they also have this really impressive sense of uh, democratic duty to the country. And this is embodied in Zelensky over time. This is something that he is nurtured in throughout the many moments of mass mobilization, and that helps him become the man we know today. On the flip side of the coin is the effect that Zelensky had on very particular portions of the Ukrainian population in rallying them to the state, specifically after he was elected to the presidency. He really often talked about this united Ukraine that uh, is above everything united in its, again, civic duty and not in some ethno-linguistic uh, divides that others may have talked about more frequently. And he he does this repeatedly in all his speeches as first, uh, or his skits actually, first as an actor and comedian, then in his speeches as a president. And then later, of course, he rallies the nation uh, when Russia uh, invades Ukraine not for the first, but for the second time on February 24th, 2022. Henry, do, maybe you want something to add there. No, I think that was well stated. Uh, Henry, Henry's shaking here. So Henry, I'm going to go to you next. Thank, Olga, thank you for that. So, so let, let's go, Henry, to Zelensky's birth. Where is he born? When is he born? And I think you've already mentioned that, that he's this kind of member of the independence generation. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, we developed the idea of what we call the independence generation as the generation of Ukrainians who were born in the late Soviet period. So um, Zelensky himself being uh, prototypical in, in 1978, but going you know, within that general age range. And those people who had their first real formative experiences in an independent independent Ukraine. So they might remember uh, the Chernobyl uh, accident, the nuclear power plant uh, accident, and they would remember Ukrainian independence, but they really became adults and rose to uh, prominence entirely in an independent Ukraine. And so we talk about Zelensky as a representative of this generation. And in particular, he was born in the uh, city of Krivirik, which is not uh, very well known to Western audiences, but is one of Ukraine's biggest cities. It's part of Ukraine's industrial heartland in the Dnipropetrovsk uh, Oblast uh, or region, and that more broadly is in Ukraine's uh, southeast, 
which is historically predominantly uh, Russian speaking, um, but also bilingual. And Zelensky rose up in this atmosphere. It was a, he describes his youth as a challenging one. Uh, it was a, a, a hard scrabble type of city uh, with uh, lots of organized crime, but at the same time, very well uh, connected because it, it was, as I mentioned, the kind of industrial heartland uh, of Ukraine, or at least part of it. And so he, he rose up in this uh, general uh, milieu. And uh, he himself, of course, is uh, of, of Jewish heritage. So both his parents are Jewish. And uh, he himself grew up primarily speaking Russian. And then, uh, but at the same time, one of the central arguments of the book is that he was still very much identified as a Ukrainian. And he himself identified with Ukraine as his country. And one of the big mistakes that analysts have made is, is thinking that, well, People who are not of Ukrainian ethnic heritage, who don't primarily speak Ukrainian as a language, aren't going to be strongly identified with Ukraine, aren't going to really want to fight for it, aren't going to be loyal to it. But in this way, he, he personifies the, that the opposite is true. So Olga, I mean, I, I'm jumping ahead a little. We're going to get back to the chronology in a second. But, but just dwelling just for a moment on Zelensky's origin, how important since the invasion, has it been to have a president who is a Russian-speaking Ukrainian Jew from the southeast of Ukraine? Would it have been different had we seen a president that was from the West? So, uh, oddly enough, we haven't seen a president from the West, really, uh, in Ukraine. There's, that's a very long history of uh, central Ukrainian, southern Ukrainian, and so on presidents. But here, I think it's really important to say that it's not so much that during the all-out war with Russia, that it's important that he is from the Southeast and that he is a Russophone, that he identified as such for a very long time. But rather, it was already during his presidency. Uh, we say in the book that he was perhaps brave to just be very frank about his uh, Russophone upbringing and demonstrate that it didn't mean that he was in any way less patriotic than other Ukrainians. Of course, the matter of language for some Ukrainians is very important. There is one state language in Ukraine, but nonetheless, he was embodying a civic patriotism of ethnic Russians, uh, ethnic Jews, Hungarians, Russian speakers that made up a very large and significant minority of the country. And uh, as Henry said, it is exactly this pre-war time uh, uh, period that he was able to really start rallying the southeastern population that perhaps prior to 2019 really de didn't see themselves as part of the in-group when it came to civic patriotism in the country. So by the time the war starts, he's already rallied this population. Right. And one of the things we mention actually in the book is that a very significant portion of Ukrainians come to support democracy as the best system for the country. Uh, in 2019, right before Zelensky is elected, it's at 41%. But by the time of February 2022, right before Russia is about to start its all-out invasion of Ukraine, that number was just around 60%. And what correlated most strongly with this jump was having voted for Zelensky's party, Sluhan Narodu, and also uh, significantly correlated being from the southeast of the country or being from key areas of the southeast. So he was rallying this population for quite some time 
And undoubtedly, these individuals, these people uh, were the first ones at the front lines uh, stopping tanks with their bare hands. Thank you, Olga. And so, so right, back to our chronology. So, so 1991, of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, how important was this for Zelensky? You know, how, how difficult was life in, in, in newly independent Ukraine uh, for him? Um, Henry, to, to take, us, take us through this early, he would have been old enough to remember all of this, wouldn't he? He would have, he would have known about, uh, about all this happening around him. Yeah, absolutely. It was a time of, I think, mixed emotions for Ukrainians, because on one hand, there was tremendous excitement about Ukraine becoming independence, and uh, there was a lot of opportunity involved. Uh, young people like him who were ambitious suddenly had uh, the possibility of rising to do whatever they wanted to do without having to go through the Communist Party, as had been in the case in the Soviet Union. Um, and of course, they were now free from the bias against uh, people who identified as anything other than Soviet or Russian uh, in the Soviet period. So on one hand, it was a, a time of great opportunity and excitement about the independence of Ukraine and what that could bring. There was a lot of optimism that Ukraine might soon uh, join the ranks of Europe and uh, reach those levels of prosperity. But as we talk about in the book, reality proved to be uh, much, much more difficult. The economy uh, had been constructed by the Soviet regime to be intimately interdependent with uh, the Soviet economy and with Russia's economy in particular. So you had the breakage of many of those ties and uh, the initial leadership of Ukraine seemed to want to focus much more on establishing Ukraine's international profile than on actually dealing with a lot of the problems that other people, that ordinary people faced. And that meant rampant inflation, crushing uh, poverty, and immense inequality, because there are a few people, uh, we write about them as the uh, so-called uh, oligarchs in Ukraine, who took advantage of the situation to become super rich and then used that initial money to consolidate their uh, hold over Ukraine's economy and uh, political system. So to bring it back down to somebody like Zelensky, he had a lot of talent. He was able to uh, be educated in a free uh, environment where he studied uh, economics uh, and law in, in college. He also had the opportunity to begin his entertainment career uh, in a free environment, which was especially important for him, given his proclivity towards uh, satire and his interest in, in politics. And so um, it was at once very, very difficult. Um, his parents were both professors, academics, and they, uh, you know, that might sound very prestigious, but we talk about in the book how uh, one of the things that the uh, Soviet collapse brought was poverty, even for categories of people like that, who uh, being not in business per se, um, were actually paid miserly uh, salaries and had to get by doing all kinds of things. Um, his father took stints working uh, abroad in Mongolia. And so it was at once difficult, but once, a t uh, but at the same time, a time of opportunity. But for the vast bulk of Ukrainians, I think it was a similar set of, of feelings, uh, but, uh, but the dominant feeling at the level of society and politics over the course of the 1990s, uh, we write, was one of growing frustration and uh, frustration with the poverty and corruption in the country and the desire for something better. Mm. And I, I think you, you touched on there, Henry, one of, the, one of the things I took from the kind of shape of the, of, of the way you uh, narrate the, the following years, which are these kind of rising waves of optimism and then, and then dashed hopes, and then again optimism, and then again uh, disappointment. So, so Olga, take us into perhaps the first, or after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the second 
really, really key chapter there, the, the Orange Revolution. You know, how, what, what, what was people like Zelensky and others, what was he hoping for and what did they uh, find instead? Well, right. I think it's important to say here that uh, although Zelensky is one of, and quite frankly, a very famous representative of the independence generation, he was not actually one of those who was uh, A, visible in the Orange Revolution protests or known to have been a supporter of them. So that's important to note. But the, the Orange Revolution is this incredible moment of mass mobilization of people power, a reaction to this fraudulent election. And within hours of the official announcement uh, of what is known to be uh, widespread electoral fraud and manipulation, uh, hundreds of thousands of people go out onto the streets of Kiev and elsewhere to protest this. And of course, this election result is overturned, as we now know, and uh, the people won in this case. And, uh, and you have this sense of euphoria, right? At least for about just about half of the population that was on the winning side. What you have immediately after, right, is this complete disenchantment with politics because these revolutionary heroes, um, Viktor um, Yushchenko, who became president uh, on the heels of the Orange Revolution, and uh, his uh, right-hand uh, woman, uh, Yulia Tymoshenko, who becomes prime minister, you see them fighting constantly over who holds what reins of power in the legislature, in government, and so on. And this becomes an incredibly unstable period of elite politics in the country. And you also see uh, a decline in a lot of other uh, indicators of well-being in Ukraine. So although you see an uptick in, in, in quality of democracy in Ukraine and general freedoms, uh, in fact, Ukraine becomes uh, a, a free democracy at this point and then unfortunately goes back again, uh, backslides again. You have this period that is just full of instability. And if you were in your 20s and you grew up throughout the turbulent 90s, you had this moment of intense euphoria and feeling of ordinary citizens victory. And then you realize that politicians are just yet again fighting not able to find any compromises, deciding to use identity politics that, again, only divide the population. And you also see that there isn't a place for you at the table yet, right? This independence generation is not only not welcomed into the halls of power, but also they are not able really to buy flats now. And if they are buying flats, they're buying flats in euros and with, you know, the knowledge that the currency might completely collapse in the future and they won't be able to pay their bills. So this becomes yet again an unstable period for the independence generation and others just like Zelensky. Although for him, this is a moment when he becomes actually quite famous returning to Ukraine and working for uh, Odin plus Odin, one plus one, the uh, at the time the top television channel. Hmm. Well, Henry, let's let, let's bring you in here on this point around how satire was being connected up with those waves of disappointment. So, so tell us a bit about what Zelensky's doing at this point in his life. You know, like um, his burgeoning media career and 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 kind of what he seems to be moving towards, kind of creatively. 
Yeah, so one of the things that he got involved with during his university years, what is known in Russian as KVN or KVN, which basically translates to the club of the funny and quick-witted. And this is basically a competition for uh, of people who are uh, Im improv performers, um, but it's not simply improv. Among the elements of the competition are responding wittily to pointed questions, and there's frequently political content. And he was very famous and, and successful in this to the point that he regularly competed even in the uh, Moscow circuit and, and actually at one point co-won uh, uh, one of the big championships there. And so he worked for six years in Russia, uh, but then it was during the period that we're talking about that he moved back to Ukraine and because uh, he decided he didn't really like Moscow very much, found it unfriendly. Uh, and wanted to make his entertainment show business career there. And he rose up very quickly, started producing shows with a group of people who uh, were the core of his Quartal 95 troupe. Quartal 95 basically means the 95th block, which is the name of his uh, neighborhood where he grew up. And so he, it, and that itself indicates a perspective trying to connect with ordinary people. And that's a lot of what his uh, initial satire was about were the concerns of ordinary people and the indifference of politicians, among other things, as, as well as a whole bunch of just slapstick stuff that uh, a lot of people found not funny, but that really widely connected with a lot of, of, of Ukrainians. And um, so he was so successful that he ultimately became the general producer for Ukraine's most popular television network at the time, Inter, and had this job during the presidency uh, of uh, Viktor Yanukovych, who was the villain in the Orange Revolution and um, one of the uh, results of the disillusionment that uh, I and Olya were talking about earlier and Olya talking about after the Orange Revolution is that Ukrainians freely elected Yanukovych back to the presidency in 2010, and he proceeded to take things in a strongly authoritarian direction. And this was a time when Zelensky himself was uh, managing the, the, the programming of this major TV channel, including the news. And this was a time when the Yanukovych administration was issuing temniki or um, directives as to what television news should uh, cover and how they should cover certain stories. And so uh, one thing that this tells us is, first of all, that he was intimately involved and, and certainly aware of politics because this was a heavily political job. It was also a major managerial job. He was effectively a media mogul. Uh, so later comments that, well, he was simply a comedian becoming president later um, doesn't take into account the fact that, that he had this political background and had this major managerial uh, experience. And in the end, he wound up jumping ship from this channel to another channel, uh, which is uh, One Plus One. And that's the one that uh, he continued to uh, work with up until he became uh, president. And so it was during this period that he really became uh, very prominent and, and his programming on uh, his shows was highly political. And it's interesting. This was a time when there was a squeeze on a public criticism, uh, when the regime was taking control of uh, politics and squeezing out opposition. One of the main opposition figures, Yulia Tymoshenko, former prime minister, was actually jailed. But Zelensky and his shows, his concerts that he was organizing were uh, engaging in very sharp political uh, satire that was often directed against 
Yanukovych and the regime. Mm. All right. So, so from Yanukovych, we have obviously 2013 into 14 Euromaidan, and and then the, the the appearance of yet another kind of a political insider, Poroshenko. So, can you, um, Olga, maybe explain a bit about patronal politics and and how it is that. These figures, Timoshenko, Poroshenko, Yushchenko, how they keep appearing in high political office, despite, it seems, these kind of waves of popular unrest that, that, that really are calling for something quite different to emerge from Ukrainian politics. Well, patronal politics is really Henry's uh, thing, so I'll, I'll let him maybe come in here a little bit. But I think it's really important that to highlight what you just said, that there are individuals that are around in every single government. And that is, uh, until now, <laughs> Petro Poroshenko. Uh, this is an individual that uh, had his own parties, that was one of the co-founders of the Party of Regions, that uh, was then later Yanukovych's uh, party. So he was intimately connected to, to, to Yanukovych and Party of Regions in that way. He was also in uh, Yanukovych's uh, government for a period of time. But he is really the consummate insider, right? And he is also from this earlier generation and uh, the, the, just before the, the independence generation that really was able to make an incredible personal wealth for himself in the 90s, right? And his different businesses that we don't need to go into right now. But this is somebody that becomes a billionaire over time and is always near or uh, holding uh, the hands of power. So I think it's very interesting that, of course, he becomes the main opposition figure in the uh, in the Yevromaidan, the mass mobilization of 2013-14. It's interesting most because the Yevromaidan is supposed to be not only about this Euro-Atlanticist direction that Ukraine's supposed to be going in uh, towards, not only about dignity um, and, you know, human rights, because uh, Yanukovych's regime was literally shooting at protesters, but it was also about dignity against this entrenched patronal oligarchic systemic corruption in the country, that these key figures not only control politics, but also the economy and become these, these barons uh, uh, of politics and, and, and economy in the country. So, that makes Poroshenko a very odd figure that rises uh, to become the main opponent uh, to Yanukovych. And then, of course, the, the, the post-revolutionary or the revolutionary president. Henry, j jump in and uh, uh, quickly tell us about patronal politics. I mean, there's one detail that caught my eye in the book where I think is it candidates handing out caskets for votes, um, which is a which is a detail I've I've, ne I've never seen before in any uh, description of political corruption. So, what on earth is happening there? How is this all working? Well, basically, patronal politics is a politics where people work through connections, connections involving actual personal acquaintance to get whatever they need to get done done not trusting or not relying on institutions, formal rules. And that was the key to the rise of these uh, oligarch figures that we're talking about, these, these massive business people. 
And I, I mentioned earlier how uh, they translated their money into control over politics. And the phenomenon you mentioned with caskets is one of the ways that they would do it is they had a lot of money. How do you convert that to political power? Well, you can give gifts to voters or to whole towns or uh, collectives or institutions and, and pr give them promises in all kinds of uh, different ways. And, um, you know, funerals are very expensive. Caskets are expensive. So that could actually be a, a valuable gift in that uh, in that context. <laughs> so the that was one of the problems. And that was one of the reasons why the same old figures kept finding ways to come back when they would have divisions among them at the top that would create opportunities for this mass mobilization to happen. But then they'd always find some way to sneak back in. So after the Orange Revolution, the new president, Viktor Yushchenko, had been the previous president's prime minister. Then uh, when he was voted out and Yanukovych was elected, who had actually been the president before, he had actually been one of Yushchenko's successors as prime minister. And then uh, Petro Poroshenko winded up uh, succeeding Yanukovych, having also have served in, in Yanukovych's regime. And so they basically ensured that these same practices continued. And, and I'll just note as an important aside is that it's not just corruption at the top. It's part of a whole system that goes all the way down to ordinary people, just expecting that this is just the way things happen in Ukraine is to uh, you know pay a bribe, go through a connection to get something. Everybody else is doing it. So if you don't do it, then you're the sucker or maybe even more so you're the one that is not fulfilling their duty to their loved ones or their family by taking advantage of the opportunities that you have. And so this is what the oligarchs play on and that's kind of key to their power. And the demand uh, by the time that disappointment started to emerge in the Euromaidan, uh, for a new type of politics was just immense, but there weren't any obvious alternatives at the time. Uh, so 2015, 2016, there, was, there were a lot of discussions about, well, we need some kind of new political face, some kind of new force. But the oligarchs would also harness that by trying to create their own parties that would really be a vehicle for their interests that had new faces, and they would even call themselves party of new people or new faces. So it was a very difficult time, but this is what we argue set the stage for Zelensky's rise. Did you know that wherever you are in the world, you can stream live Intelligence Squared debates and discussions? We've just launched a new online streaming service called Intelligence Squared Plus, where you can tune in to all our upcoming events, ask your questions, vote on motions, and also watch back all our previous events on demand wherever you want. The usual price is $14.99 a month, but for you, our podcast listeners, for just 10 days, we've got a special introductory offer of £10 per month. Visit intelligencesquaredplus.com or click the link in our description and use the code MONTH10 or ANNUAL10 to start watching. Offer ends at midnight GMT on Tuesday 20th of December, so subscribe today and don't miss out. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation 
of George Orwell's classic. 1984 was pretty cool. And I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. All right, well, Zelensky's moment seems to be drawing near. So we have this kind of generation of kind of compromised oligarchic political leaders. We have Zelensky's burgeoning media empire as he's using kind of biting satire to plug into kind of uh, public disappointment, dissidence and cynicism. Um, Olga, take us from servant of the people through to his presidential campaign? How did he finally then, after so many years of actually wanting nothing to do with politics, how did he finally step in and run? I don't know if I'm convinced that he wanted nothing to do with politics. I mean, as Henry already said, being uh, the general producer of Inter makes you quite involved in politics in some way. But, you know, everything that Henry just said, what happens in 2015 is that Ukraine sees yet another major, major spike of poverty. So poverty rates go through the roof in Ukraine. This is also one year into the Donbass war with Russia. There is instability in the country. And we're back for some people, um, for some ordinary citizens, we are back to the place where some people found themselves in the 1990s, not being able to afford to buy meat for dinner. That's actually something that Zelensky talked about as a childhood memory and his father promising that his friends would have always the ability to eat meat at their home. These are the kind of questions that ordinary Ukrainians were going through. Whilst also uh, engaged in a war. And again, again, with having the sense of disappointment for some following a revolutionary moment. And all of these things are captured in this show, Servant of the People, where Zelensky stars as uh, Vasil Holoborodko, who is a history teacher turned unexpectedly president. Um, after his students submit a video that goes viral and, and ordinary citizens provide, uh, money for, for this character to become, to be able to pay the amount to become a candidate for president. And the whole entire series of Servant of the People is actually just this real story of ordinary Ukrainians' lives. The fact that ordinary Ukrainians have to pay bribes to get basic things done, that they have to take out credits to buy very simple uh, items for the home, like a microwave, that uh, the, the oligarchs are controlling political power. All of this is displayed uh, very, uh, in times very humorously, and not always my sense of humor, but nonetheless, a little slapstick comedy in those first two seasons. Very clearly. So most ordinary citizens watching that servant of the people will have recognized that this is art imitating life. This is the experience of ordinary citizens. But then there comes that third season. Zelensky, there's a lot of rumors whether or not Zelensky will run for president in, in those few years, right? And there's the, the, the rumor mill was spinning and spinning. Uh, he announces, of course, his presidency in a New Year's Eve address, 
um, where he is goes from uh, playing a child in a snowsuit to now Vladimir Zelensky, which is the last time I think he calls himself that publicly, uh, which is the, the Russian way of saying his name, and then goes on to announce his uh, candidacy for president. Then comes the third season of Servant of the People. And the only way to understand that third season is as part of, of Zelensky's campaign, quite frankly. This, this is very much the substance of his campaign. It is running during the electoral campaign, so immediately following that January 1st announcement. Uh, and it is about a country at war. It is about a country divided. It is about a country that is divided uh, along various different lines that he then shows are not the things that are important to ordinary citizens and to, or to the to Ukrainians, right? And the whole season is about him piecing the country back together and through whatever means he can, uh, ending in a very beautiful uh, few scenes uh, where... Uh, Donetsk-based miners come to the rescue, uh, the eastern Donetsk-based miners come to the rescue of the western Lviv miners who are stuck underground. Uh, and in the very end, in order to pay off Ukraine's mounting IMF debt, Vasil uh, Holborotko makes this beautiful speech on how we need to do this ourselves. And overnight, ordinary citizens of Ukraine in the show collect all of their wealth, belongings, watches, jewelry, money, and place it on the independent square, the Maidan, the location where all these mass mobilizations happened before. We call this in the book a virtual incumbency because the reality is that whilst political science thinks that incumbents have uh, this benefit of of they're, just because they're there, just because they're present and doing their job and people see them doing their job, they have this incumbency advantage. Whereas Zelensky, he was playing a fictional president on television, but he was in fact doing his job. And he perhaps was seen on television by more ordinary Ukrainians than the actual president was seen on television doing his job. And so we think he benefited from this uh, very real uh, virtual incumbency effect in those few months of the last season of Servant of the People. Thank you, Olga. And of course, that propels him into the presidency itself. Now, I'm going to um, take some questions from the audience because I think they, they are going to be able to carry us through to the to the, to the end of the chronology and, and to the present day. Everyone, thank you for your questions so far. Please do type them in uh, as we go now over the kind of second half of our discussion. But, but I'm going to go to Raul first uh, and, and Henry to you. Um, was Zelensky popular before the, the war? So um, what was the early pre-invasion part of his presidency like? And, and actually, I'll add to that. What, what, what did he come in seeking to do? What, what was his agenda? Well, his popularity had uh, ups and downs, um, but uh, certainly as a performer before he became president, he was tremendously popular. And this is what led to many people actually trying to recruit him into politics, which happened at least a couple of times we documented in the book prior to his actual decision to run at the end of 2018 for the presidency in 2019. 
And uh, when he won, his victory was the largest in uh, Ukrainian history. I mean, he just trounced the, the incumbent president, Petro Poroshenko. And so this was the largest margin of victory uh, in Ukrainian history. So he was well over two thirds approval ratings for the first part of his presidency. But uh, one of the problems that he faced was that just uh, several months into his presidency, less than a year, you had the uh, onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, which started to take its toll over time. And of course, you had the ongoing war with Russia. So his popularity began to dip and it dipped down to maybe about uh, a third of the population approving of, uh, of his performance, depending on which polls you look. So that was the basically the floor for him. And that was right before the February 24th all-out assault by the Russians. What we do know to the book, though, is that still this was higher. His floor was higher than uh, pretty much had been the case for any of his predecessors. Uh, the norm in Ukraine had been to come to power on an election and then the glow would fade. And uh, then they wouldn't even be reelected if you actually had a free election. But in Zelensky's case, he was actually faring better. But then, of course, once the war came, his rating shot back through the roof. So he went through approval ratings of, you know, 30, 35 percent, all the way up to, by some polls, 90 percent uh, approval ratings. And one thing we do talk about in the book, I'll just mention, is that, uh, you know, we argue that that 90 percent has to be interpreted with at least a little grain of salt. And, and we think what that reflects is primarily just massive agreement that, we need to back Zelensky now uh, among uh, Ukrainians, right? Ag agreeing that they need to back Zelensky now to fight off the Russian uh, massive uh, aggression. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they don't harbor doubts underneath. And, it, and, and some people will say uh, openly that, okay, well, we support him now, but uh, we're a democracy and we have a lot of things that we're going to need to discuss after the election. And so we estimate that um, a little over a quarter of the population feels that way. So out of that 90%, ballpark, um, about uh, you know, 25, 30% have these reservations, uh, but that still leaves three-fifths of the population that really fully and wholeheartedly support him now. And, and what was his overall, so his overall program? I mean, we've spoken a lot about patronal politics. I mean, did, did he come in explicitly to try and clean that up? I mean, was he kind of an anti-corruption candidate, Olga, or was he really talking about aligning Ukraine with Europe? Was it about pushing Russia out of the East? You know, what were, what were his kind of mainstay ambitions as, as a new president? Yes, yeah, certainly. I guess he can be described as an anti-patronal uh, politics candidate. Um, certainly, he promised to get rid of deputy immunity, which he his party did do. Uh, he talked about land reform, which they did manage to pass. He also talked about the deoligarchization of the country, which he is in the process of doing, albeit not without criticism. At the same time, I think, oh, and 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 notably, he was definitely a pro. EU candidate. And the pro-European message is not only present in his campaign speeches and then later his speeches as president, but also uh, very much so in, in, the, in the comedy uh, Servant of the People and then in his theatrical performances uh, before. But where perhaps there was not as much clarity on his position on the war with Russia, because he kept saying that peace 
He was, he's a peace president. He was, he was a president that's, uh, that kept saying we need peace, uh, perhaps saying that we just need to talk to Russia. Uh, we can have negotiations with Russia. And, uh, Henry and I write in the book that we think, uh, his stance on, uh, the war in Donbass and possible negotiations with Russia on Minsk were a little bit naive. Um, uh, they certainly changed very quickly. Uh, this was his, this was at least how he presented himself during the campaign. Within that first year, uh, it became very clear that this is just, you cannot simply talk with Russia. This is not going to work. Mm, thank you, Olga. And sticking with you, let, let, let's bring ourselves now up to that fateful day, February 24th, of the, the first day of the all-out invasion of Ukraine. This is from Francesca, this question. Do you believe a different leader of Ukraine would have fled to the West? when Russia invaded? Well, do I personally believe or do I as an academic believe? Coulda, woulda, shoulda, we don't know what would have happened. Um, were, uh, well, Yanukovych did flee the country. So you definitely you have an answer there. Perhaps would others, uh, I can't say. But we do know that he talked to people within his administration in the days prior. Some of the folks that we spoke to um, off the record, of course, in those conversations that they had in that week, two weeks prior, they said, well, what, what do we do? And he said, well, you go home, you take your families, you take care of yourself, you leave if you need be, but I'm staying. So that was a message that at least his inner circle knew very clearly. Thanks, Olga. And just you, I just parking the academic uh, kind of need for evidence for one second. Like, what, what's your feeling? You know, you spent so much time, you know, thinking about and 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 listening to and reading the uh, the the previous leaders of Ukraine. Do you think a Poroshenko or a Timoshenko would have would have stayed? You know, was this was this uh, was this something out of the ordinary? Do you think for a Ukrainian leader to have dug in in Kiev? Um, certainly, you know, as as he was the target of the kind of strategic attempt by Russia to decapitate the regime. They both stayed as well, and they're doing their duty, and they are playing their role in trying to defend Ukraine. I really don't think it's helpful to to make Zelensky into this really, truly incredible. It is incredible. He is an incredible figure, but I don't think he's that extraordinary. And actually, our colleague who we cite in the book, uh, Professor Harang, says Zelensky was doing what any good ordinary Ukrainian would do, uh, play their role in defending the country. And I think that is that is really what we know about Zelensky. He embodies that civic spirit of ordinary Ukrainians that all of you have seen on, on your smartphones, on your television screens, where elderly people are trying to stop tanks with their hands, where farmers are trying to take tanks out of the fields. There is this real incredible resilience and bravery amongst ordinary Ukrainians. And I think Zelensky is just like that. Mm. Well, Henry, so let's disentangle this a little. We've spoken a lot about how Ukraine has shaped Zelensky. Let's talk a little bit about what impacts he, he himself has either had or not had then on, on Ukrainian resistance. So the, the, I think probably the most visible bit of all of that that we would have seen here from the UK, and, and I imagine many of the people listening to this would have been his speeches that he's given, you know, kind of daily throughout the um, war. How important are they? Kind of what effect have they, have they had? Let's go on the domestic audience first, and then Olga, I'll turn to you to talk perhaps a little bit about the kind of international um, aspect of those two. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that we argue in the book generally is that his impact 
in part of the Zelensky effect is that he reflects and amplifies this sense of civic duty and civic national identity, uh, kind of identification and loyalty to a Ukraine for all of its people, all of its citizens. And so he, he reflects this and amplifies that. And that comes across first and foremost in his speeches. So while we think it's true that lots of ordinary Ukrainians, had they been suddenly thrust into his position of leadership, would have done what he did and stayed, not all of them would have had his skills at communication. And we spend a lot of uh, time in the book talking about his speeches, analyzing them statistically in some cases, uh, you know, but also just presenting uh, the text of some of his words at length because we think they are very, very important. And he is able to articulate this uh, vision of a united, free, democratic Ukraine in a way that uh, resonates with so many uh, people. And again, even his political opponents have been willing, uh, at least for now, to uh, set aside their political opposition in order to fight for him. So we, what we don't argue is that he created this sense of civic identity through his words, but he's clearly very effective at articulating them and reminding people why they need to stand up and fight and do their, or support the fight and do their duty um, before ordinary Ukrainians. Olga, we've seen him addressing parliaments. We've seen him evoking the kind of national symbols and histories of countries all over the world. I mean, he, he's been unbelievably good, hasn't he, uh, at convincing nations all over the world that this conflict is, 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 is involving them as well. Uh, and that there are matters at stake here that, that, that are far broader than simply Ukraine's territory, but actually the very ideas of democracy in Europe are at stake. Like, was, was, that, was that part of the Zelensky effect, do you think? Was, was that something that was specifically his ability to do rather than a, a Poroshenko? Well, certainly. I, I, th I think Zelensky is able to communicate in a way that not everyone can. He co-writes his speeches. He has a team helping him out, obviously, as well. Uh, but he is able to both write and deliver a really impactful and, quite frankly, beautiful speech. And when he addresses you, he knows how to place the emphasis on the right words in the right moments, taking the pauses where necessary. So I think that's that's clear, right? And certainly his his career as an actor and, and on stage and theater has helped. Uh, but he also has this capacity to understand which pieces of information, some of that you just identified, are the ones that need to be deployed because they will land particularly well with a given audience. And of course, he was able to do that with audiences around the world in a way that I think few, quite frankly, politicians globally can. But also, I saw him speaking to our students in the United Kingdom, uh, Ukrainian students and others uh, around the United Kingdom. And he did this, obviously, through a, a video address. And he was able to speak to them, not only as this wartime president uh, and international figure, but in a way that resonated with them, right? Talking about the sorts of things that 
are important to them in their daily lives. He was able to connect to them on a very personal level, even though he was doing it for, on a screen from, uh, you know, many, many miles away. And I think that's exactly this. He reads his audiences very well. He knows exactly which, the, which these nuggets to use in his speeches. And he does so also for the Ukrainian audiences. Um, one of the things that we did in the book is we took this one poem by Lina Kostenko, you don't have to think meagerly, that he used in a particular wartime speech. And Nina Kostenko is a very famous poetess and dissident from the 1960s. She is adored and beloved by many, many Ukrainians. So much so that her poems are graffiti on um, walls in Kiev and Lviv and Kharkiv. Youth love Nina Kostenko. And he was able to very cleverly interject this poem. There's no need to think meekerly. When he was talking about those politicians in Ukraine that were calling to give up or to succumb to Russia's aggression, right? And he was naming them, calling them out, interrupts that and says this poem. And he does it in a way that everyone just gets chills when they hear it, right? To a different audience, it's probably not poetess Lina Kostenko, but nonetheless, he knows exactly what to use at which moment. Yeah, that really is a beautiful, beautiful example. Sorry, Henry, yeah, Go ahead. Yeah, can I just add one more thing? I, I think um, you know his. Uh, I think that we would both emphasize is that his speaking ability isn't just about the ability to sort of reel out a stemwinder, right? To really rile people up and connect with them in these flowery long speeches, uh, which he can do. But uh, he's also very adept at social media, which was an essential part of his appeal. Uh, you know, back before his presidential campaign, but certainly during his presidential campaign. So. Many of his appeals are very short, right? They're just uh, a minute, Instagram, Facebook, something like that. And uh, those often have a huge uh, reach across the world, uh, as well as in Ukraine, and can make very targeted points. And he's just very good at making them almost off the cuff. In some cases, uh, we've been told they actually are more, more or less just off the cuff, uh, but very to the point and very effective. Thanks. And Henry, let's stay with you. This, this next question is um, from Michael. Michael, thank you for your question. And it, it begins to move us towards the future now. So Michael asks, do you think Zelensky is a pragmatist? Would he sign a deal with Russia to end the war? Well, I think the question is under what circumstances? I, I think he would happily sign a, a deal with Russia to end the war if uh, Ukraine got all of its territory back. Uh, Russia receded uh, to its own borders. Uh, Russia uh, paid Ukraine compensation, reparations of some kind, right? So I think he would clearly accept that. I guess I would be very surprised if he would accept almost anything short of that. Certainly anything ceding Ukrainian territory, uh, letting Russia get any actual territorial gain from this. At, at this point, I can't imagine him uh, accepting that. Beyond that, it becomes negotiations over when sanctions might be lifted on Russia, what kind of reparations, how much reparations should be paid uh, uh, and um, whether and how war crimes should be prosecuted involving Russians and um, you know what it take when it comes time to sign a deal uh, along those lines um, you know I'm, I'm sure he'd be happy to end the war but at this point I, I I just find it almost impossible to believe that he would sign something you know that a lot of most Ukrainians would find to be a premature uh, settlement especially given the success of the Ukrainians on the battlefield which is just validated, you know, his whole stance 
which is rolling back Russian aggression. It's very slow. It's very painful, but it, it is happening. Olga, this is such an important question. I'd, I'd like to go to you on the same one, because in a way, like it seems, at least to me, on the one hand, with, with Putin's kind of autocratic power and, and now Zelensky's kind of wild popularity and kind of you know symbolic representation of Ukrainian nationhood, you, you have two, it almost feels like it's reduced now, the end of the war, to, to these two personalities and, and what they each decide to do and, the, and, and what they each decide to, to try and corral their nation into. Um, is, is that right? And, and if it is the case, really, really what kind of a leader are we going to see in Zelensky as he comes ultimately to that negotiating table? To go with Henry, really, it's going to be, it, it is this red line around, around full restoration of Ukrainian territorial integrity and, and nothing less than that? Well, I think that's a, that's a very interesting question. Here I'm going to cite the title of our colleague's book, Sam and Graham, uh, uh, Graham Robertson and Sam Green. Uh, their book title is Putin v. the People. Now, I think that's very much the kind of scenario that we do have in Putin. Whereas Zelensky, as we keep saying in the book, is a product of his nation, is the embodiment of the median voter in Ukraine. He is with the people and they are with him because he is embodying their central aims, goals, and views on things. Right now, according to surveys that we've been running this year with Henry, we know that the population is not supportive of negotiations, certainly when it means to when it means losing territory, right? We, we've asked this question more than once, and we know that there is no appetite for this, this sort of negotiation. So if Zelensky were to negotiate away some territory or accept uh, that some territory is now remaining in the hands of Russian control, uh, quite frankly, he would lose the people. Very simply. This is not uh, an autocracy. This, you know, still is a wartime democracy with all its issues, right? And there are, there's a lot of centralization of power happening and, and a lot of criticism of that uh, in, the, in the media sphere, for instance. But Zelensky will need his people. And if he goes against them, they will vote him out. I think that's very clear right now. Um, so I think it's a little bit trickier. And we talk about this uh, also in the book. Uh, we conducted a list experiment to figure out what is the the true uh, voting intention support for Zelensky. And we do find that there is about 25 or so plus percent of the population that uh, declare that they would vote in an outright question that say, yes, we would vote for Zelensky. But then when you ask them in, in a manner that hides them in some way, I guess, disguises them from the interviewer, then they, they in fact say, no, we would vote for somebody else or we would not vote for Zelensky in this case. So his critics and opponents have not gone away. Uh, he has high support, but he knows it is not in fact in the nineties, as Henry already said. And, uh, Zelensky is made by the people instead of being against the people as Putin might be. So he will need them um, and he will need to pay attention and listen to them and what they want in this war. 
Well, we're almost at time, but I think we have just about enough to crowbar one last question in. It's a wonderful one. So, so I've been hoping we can ask this. Henry, over to you for the final one. So um, what? how will Zelensky be remembered? And this is an audience question, thank you, anonymously written. Um, how will Zelensky be remembered in history and by history? I mean, is, is it inevitable now that he's going to join the kind of pantheon of kind of great world leaders, you know, up there with Mandela and Gandhi and Churchill and so on? Well, I don't think it's inevitable. We have to see what the war brings. Um, it's just impossible to tell the future. The war could end in many different ways. If we had to go by today's trajectory, though, I, I think for sure he would be remembered uh, as a great wartime leader. Then there will be debates on his presidency uh, before that point, uh, whether or not his wartime leadership reflected a new Zelensky, um, which is an argument some have made, although we've argued that, in fact, it's the same old Zelensky. Uh, who actually accomplished a good amount relative to others under very difficult circumstances in Ukraine. So probably that would be how he'd rem be remembered. But again, there's so much ahead that it, it's just too hard to uh, predict. Some debacle happens, um, you know, who, who knows? Uh, but at least I think the, the current trajectory is good. And uh, the biggest, you know, questions lying ahead, I think, uh, if Ukraine wins the the war, a kind of a clear victory, then um, you know questions will be more about well, what is Zelensky going to do with all of this popularity uh, that he has? All right. Well, on that itself, a great question. Let's let's end it. Olga Henry, thank you, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. The the book I have it right here is the Zelensky effect. Um, I heartily recommend it. It's a really, really wonderful insight into clearly such an important person for us all to understand. I'm Carmilla, and you've been watching or listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks so much for coming, everyone. Thanks for all your wonderful questions and hope to see you again soon. Thanks very much. Goodbye.